This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Overcoming great challenges like COVID-19 requires great cooperation. This is Dan Hilferty, CEO of Independence Blue Cross. Most of us never imagined we'd be facing an outbreak of this magnitude. But in the face of this challenge, hospitals, public officials, and business leaders have come together. Through effective cooperation, these leaders are taking steps to keep us safe. Slowing the rate of infection from the virus will help hospitals care for those who need attention most. Remember, stay home. Leave only for essential needs. Stay informed from sources like the CDC or Department of Health. Take a break from watching the news. Stay well, exercise, and practice self-care to make sure you're physically and mentally fit. In our great region, we have a tradition of caring for each other and cooperating to get things done. We'll do it again now. For more, visit ibx.com COVID-19. Together, we will beat COVID-19. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. A radio.com station. From the Malamud and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. That is a very, very robust, vigorous, achu sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Dementia, a diagnosis that is devastating to a patient and their loved ones and their caregivers. It comes in many forms and from several different causes. November is National Alzheimer's Disease Month and National Family Caregivers Month. Here to explain more about dementia is Dr. Barry Rovner, Professor of Neurology, Psychiatry, and Ophthalmology at the Jefferson Hospital for Neuroscience. We'll also hear from a very courageous man, Mr. Phil Guttis, a former reporter for the New York Times, who will share the story of his personal struggle with Alzheimer's disease. And then from Kelly Butsack, the Assistant Director of Programs for the Alzheimer's Association, the Delaware Valley Chapter. Well, I start with a very special welcome to my friend and colleague and medical school classmate, go JMC class right. of 1980, go Jefferson, Dr. Barry Robner. Thanks for being here, Barry. Of course, Marianne, it's a pleasure to help out. Well, thank you. So let's begin, Barry, so much good information. How do we define dementia? Well, dementia is a syndrome, so that means it's not a diagnosis, but it's a syndrome characterized by cognitive decline, losses in memory, reasoning ability, orientation to time and place, language use, and that those deficits in those various cognitive areas are severe enough to impair somebody's ability to function every day. Mm-hmm. Dementia is caused by different diseases, though, and people often confuse that concept. They think dementia is a specific condition, but it's not. Um, different diseases, like Alzheimer's disease, cause dementia. Other causes of dementia are like Parkinson's disease, head injuries, 
stroke, a whole variety of conditions can cause that syndrome of cognitive decline that's bad enough to interfere with your day-to-day function. So as you say, Barry, it falls into two major groups. Sometimes it's direct damage to the, the neurons or the cells in the brain. Other times it's because of decreased blood flow. So the vascular disease, say from high blood pressure, diabetes, that sort of thing. That's right. And that's a good point to make because that shows that, in fact, dementia can be prevented. So you distinguished just now the neurodegenerative part, that is where nerve cells die and cause memory loss and functional problems. And that would be the case with Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. But other forms of dementia are due to vascular disease, where small blood vessels can be damaged from high blood pressure, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, like elevated cholesterol and triglycerides. And why that's important is because each of those latter conditions are treatable. And thereby, you can prevent dementia if, in fact, you have one of those risk states, like, say, diabetes, for example. And also, of course, large strokes can cause dementia, too. And there again, strokes are preventable. Mm -hmm. So the point is, dementia is not a single thing. Uh, It's due to very many different conditions, like vascular disease, and sometimes it's entirely preventable. Sure. So if someone's unfortunate to have enough to have Alzheimer's, with with age, they could also have a vascular uh, component as well. But I guess other things you consider, people that drink excess alcohol, or sometimes somebody might appear to have dementia or confusion, and it's a side effect of a medicine. And how often do you associate it with depression? They're great points, Marianne. Thank you for pointing that out. So depression and um, alcohol use are risk factors for dementia. And sometimes when somebody is an older person, particularly, if somebody is really depressed, they cannot think clearly. And they might be wrongly said to say, have Alzheimer's disease when in fact it's their depression that's causing the cognitive difficulties. And that's easy enough to sort out. I mean, a physician all has to do is evaluate somebody for depression. And and if somebody does seem depressed, you would not diagnose Alzheimer's disease. You would in fact treat the depression. And the other point you point out, which is also important, is that certain medications directly can impair memory. And it's obviously necessary when a physician is evaluating somebody with memory loss to make sure that they're not taking a medication that can cause memory problems. And the kinds of uh, medicines that cause memory problems are drugs um, with what's called anticholinergic activity. And as a GI physician, you're well aware of those medications. You use them all the time. But Mm -hmm. but, um, in fact, um, drugs that are used to slow the bowel down, or to uh, treat Parkinson's disease sometimes. Mm-hmm. Medications like Benadryl, for example, are potent anticholinergic medications. So if an older person is taking Benadryl a lot, that can well account for memory decrements. And of course, it's treatable. If, if the Benadryl is the cause, you want to stop using it. Now, sometimes, as you know, you need to use those medications, but you want to use them judiciously and, and, and not jump into a diagnosis of, say, Alzheimer's disease when a medication could be part of the problem. Sure. You also mentioned alcohol use. So uh, alcohol use is interesting. Um, a little bit of alcohol use is actually protective 
against Alzheimer's disease. But when you cross a line and are drinking too heavily, that can directly damage the brain and cause uh, cognitive difficulties. And I know another area of concern for especially parents is their children playing football. And my own daughter played field hockey and was hit in the head more than once. And uh, a lot of people through history, boxers, people had repeat, even mild trauma, repeated mild concussions. That's an issue, isn't it, for later in life? It is. It is an issue. Um, And that's why people at schools, especially, and for young people, are especially careful uh, about um, preventing head injuries. Because, in fact, uh, concussions, and especially repeated concussions, can uh, incite a process by which um, neurons die in the brain decades, sometimes decades, sometimes sooner, later. And so, you know, uh, football players can develop what's called chronic uh, traumatic encephalopathy from repeated head injuries while playing football. And so that's, again, something preventable. And, and so uh, I think that's the point that 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 much of the cognitive decline that can occur in older people is preventable by controlling the risk factors like head injury, excess alcohol use, medications, hypertension, diabetes. All of that is a way uh, to prevent cognitive decline. What about insufficient sleep? Do you think that adds to the risks? You know, all of us are, oh, don't, don't say that. You're scaring me. Well, yeah. So so sleep is very important um, for your brain health. And in fact, during sleep, during sleep, um, your body clears the protein that accumulates in Alzheimer's disease. The name of that protein is amyloid. And we build up normally, we build up certain levels of amyloid in our brains um, in daily life. And then with good sleep, your brain can clear amyloid. Now you mentioned uh, you're concerned about sleep and and sleep apnea is a risk factor for dementia, but there again, it's a treatable risk factor. That's why it's really important to identify people with sleep problems like sleep apnea, people who are just getting drowsy and dropping off in the middle of a conversation or anytime they're not being stimulated, if they fall asleep during the day, that sort of suggests that's excessive daytime sleepiness and indicates probably the presence of a sleep disorder. Sure. And so that that would should that should prompt some evaluation. So the good news is if you treat your sleep apnea, just like if you treat your diabetes and hypertension, then that does not increase the risk for cognitive decline. Right. Let's take a little break. I'm going to take a nap and we'll be right back with Dr. Barry Robner. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. And we're back with Dr. Barry Robner from the Jefferson Neuroscience. Barry, how is dementia usually suspected? Does the patient notice changes in himself or herself in memory or they walk into a room and say, why am I here? Or is it usually more um, obvious to a family member or a friend? Right, that's a great question. Um, Typically, uh, when it's really dementia, when it's really the problem, like Alzheimer's disease or dementia from strokes, it's the family members who notice it. And and they will say, you know, something's, something's the matter with mom's memory or something's the matter with my wife's 
uh, memory. I can see that over the past couple of years, it's gotten worse, and she doesn't think there's any problem at all, but I'm noticing more and more as time goes by that she's becoming more and more forgetful. That's pretty much um, how it happens with dementia when it's gotten bad. But by contrast, on the other hand, there's the worried well phenomenon where um, people who are very attuned to how they're functioning day to day, as they get older, they start to notice the expected cognitive difficulties that come with age. So dementia is clearly not normal aging. It's when you've crossed the line. It's when you're, you have multiple cognitive deficits that are interfering with your life. That's easily recognizable, not by the person themselves, because in fact, by the very fact of their dementia, they lose the insight into the fact that they're having difficulties. And they say, yeah, my memory's, you know, yeah, it's not as good as it used to be, but it's not that bad and I'm fine. Mm. That's what you typically hear somebody with dementia say. But on the other hand, the worried well is, you know, the fact is, like other parts of your body, your brain ages normally. Right. And, and when it ages, it doesn't work as well. And when it doesn't work as well, what people tend to notice is they can't come up with words. They say, you know that thing over there, or what's his name? And they, what's that actor's name, or what was the name of that movie that I saw? I just can't. And it's, it's, that's, it's the naming function that goes first. And again, that's what goes with normal or expected cognitive aging. Right, because as long and as so it can still... Walking in, yeah, I'm sorry, but as long right, as you can still, you can still balance your checkbook or you find your way to the store, you worry when somebody says, "I'm, honey, I'm going to the store, and an hour later they come back and you say, where were you? And my own dad had uh, bypass surgery and uh, developed pneumonia. Anyway, he was on a ventilator for five weeks, and when he Lazarus and, and came back to life, we were thrilled, but gradually uh, became more confused and they associated with those times where he was congested, had low oxygen levels here and there, and it was a vascular dementia, just as you describe. So, Barry, when the time comes, how do you make the diagnosis? Of course, his history and physical with a very careful neurologic exam, mental status check. Is there a specific test that you ask people certain questions? Yes. Um, so you typically in the office when you're trying to make a diagnosis, a family member typically will bring their relative in and they'll say, you know, mom's gotten forgetful over the past couple of years. And then you will do a mental status exam, which means you'll find out that somebody is first off not depressed. And if they're not depressed, then you give a cognitive test to assess their memory and their language ability and their reasoning abilities and their visual spatial perception. Uh, and decision making and that can be done relatively quickly within about 10-15 minutes uh, administering a test that assesses those things and in fact then you've objectively documented that the brain isn't working as well as it should based on those cognitive tests so then and the caregiver said that this person because of their deficits can't balance the checkbook or is getting lost or is forgetting to take their medication Mm -hmm. So now that's de that's dementia, the history of cognitive decline, the objective demonstration of cognitive deficits, and that are severe enough to impair function. That doesn't say what the disease is. It just right. says that they have this syndrome of dementia. Then you get blood tests to make sure that there's not an anemia 
or a renal ins insufficiency or a problem with the liver. And you will get a, a brain imaging study like an MRI to see if the, if, if the person has had a bleed in their brain or a stroke or a tumor, rarely. Um, and you'll do a neurological exam, as you say, to make sure that, or to identify other conditions, like if it is a tremor, which would suggest Parkinson's disease, or a rigidity, which could suggest that as well. So on the basis of the history, the objective demonstration of cognitive difficulties, the blood test, the imaging study, the neurological exam, you can come to the conclusion that a person has a form of dementia. In an older person, and by older I mean at least over 75, say, um, the most likely cause is Alzheimer's disease, a disease where brain cells die. That is simply the most complex. After, say, 75, 80, most people have combinations of both vascular and Alzheimer's disease because so many people have vascular risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, so forth. Sure, that makes sense. And and I know you check for thyroid activity, too. A very slow thyroid can cause confusion. My own mother, <clears throat> toward the end of her days, had breast cancer that had spread, and some cancer patients get an elevated calcium level that can make them confused and obtunded, and she basically went to sleep into a coma. Um, yeah. Um, uh, but too, I want to jump in on that because that's, well, of course, it's ter terrible. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that and see that. As, and you're not alone. I mean, so many right? So many children see that. But, but the important point that I had to mention, which you point out, is that thyroid is also one of the blood tests we check because hypothyroidism can lead to cognitive difficulties. And if you don't check it, you might think somebody has Alzheimer's disease when, in fact, it's due to an underactive thyroid, which is obviously very treatable. And the other condition we check for is a vitamin B12 deficiency, because B12 deficiency can also cause a dementia, and it itself is treatable with B12 replacement. Right. And so the, the as a GI doc, I always think, is the stomach chronically inflamed? That can lead to low B12 levels or alcohol. And so when I see a patient, I always say, do you drink alcohol? Because it could cause GI symptoms, but I need to know as well. And they'll say, yeah, just socially. And I say, what does that mean? You know, is every day Christmas? Um, how much do you drink? Because, it, uh, you know, especially when people retire, they think, well, I'll have a glass of wine for dinner and maybe a second. And, and as time continues, that, that becomes a, a cumulative effect. Is there any use for genetic testing, Barry? Right. Um Genetic testing really doesn't apply at all for um, Alzheimer's disease, although it's certainly true that um, having a, a first-degree family member with Alzheimer's disease increases your risk. Um, there's not a test that you can go out and say, oh, well, I've got the gene. Um, the genetic causes of Alzheimer's are really most evident in people who develop dementia before age 60. So we're really talking about a very rare condition, but amongst people who develop dementia, again, before age 60, then there's probably a genetic cause where a gene could potentially be identified. That, and there's the APOE gene. So APOE is a gene that makes um, a cholesterol transport protein. And that gene exists in three different forms, E2, E3, and E4. They're all normal, but people who have the E4 form, which is about 20-25% of the population, 
if you have an E4 gene, you're somewhat more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease than if you didn't have an E4 gene. But that said, not everybody who has an E4 gene develops Alzheimer's, and about 40% of people with Alzheimer's don't do not have the E4 gene. So there, you know, that's why, although there's a gene that could be readily tested for, the APOE gene, nobody recommends you get it, that testing, because it doesn't prove that you'll get the disease or prevent the fact that you'll get the disease. Mm -hmm. So aside from the very early onset people and that APOE genotype, um, there's really not genetic testing that goes yeah. on. And maybe and even, it would if just... you, even if you have yeah, it could cause right. unnecessary worry, I guess, too, if you find That's out right. you have it. Exactly mm -hmm. so. Exactly so. Unnecessarily. But the other important point is, even if you have a parent who develops late-onset Alzheimer's disease, and again, late-onset being, say, after age 70, your risk of developing Alzheimer's in your lifetime is only 17%, one seven. Mm -hmm. So that means you should not think that just because my mother had Alzheimer's or even my mother and my grandmother, it doesn't mean that you, in fact, will get Alzheimer's. In fact, odds are you will not. And to that score, you can prevent or reduce your risk by doing all the things we say, controlling high blood pressure, controlling diabetes, exercise is really important. Physical activity is, is probably the one of the best medicines you can take to prevent cognitive decline, exercise, cognitive activity, social engagement, all of those things can build your muscle up like a brain and prevent cognitive decline. Well, you answered my last question, that one of the most common questions people ask, and that's it. And the other one, uh, I think people are a little bit disappointed. The Food and Drug Administration had hearings last week that ended on Friday. There was hope that aducanumab would be... Uh, yes able to target that amyloid or that protein buildup in the brain, reduce buildup, and be a treatment for Alzheimer's, but not enough evidence that it works and maybe side effects. So a little disappointing. Right. 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 But it's still it's still a promise, though, and, and, and I don't think, I wouldn't rule it out yet. Right. But, but I think the FDA, I think reasonably, the, the advisor committee to the FDA reasonably decided that there was insufficient evidence to say that this medication is uh, should be recommended for approval yet. And they'll probably have to do another trial to really sort that out. And maybe change the dose a little bit. Well, Dr. Barry Robner, my dear friend, thank you so much for being on the show. Mm -hmm. People learned a lot from listening to you, and I hope it reassures people that some instances there is control, and we'll do our best to stay healthy. Thanks, Barry. My pleasure, Marianne. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate. Wonderful. Take care. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. We are so fortunate to hear from our next guest, Mr. Phil Guttis, a former reporter for the New York Times who now writes and speaks extensively for the Alzheimer's Association and is probably their biggest advocate. Hello, Phil, and thank you for joining us. Hello. Great to be here. Phil, I mentioned to our listeners earlier that you were going to share your story that you were diagnosed with dementia in 2016. How did that come about? Did you notice difficulty with your memory or did someone else notice it? 
I've asked my husband and my sister that question because I don't remember, but they tell me that I was complaining that something was wrong, that I just did not feel right. And um, ultimately, ultimately, it led to uh, a clinical trial and a diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's. And I remember you telling me that you went to your primary care doctor. That's the perfect first step. And what did your doctor say? <laughs> uh, he thought I was being ridiculous. Um, pretty, he yelled at me, actually. He yelled at me that there was nothing wrong with me and that uh, I should stop being so silly. And, uh, you know, I left his office kind of ashamed for even asking. Oh, that, that wasn't a good feeling for you. No. No, and as you can imagine, he's no longer my doctor. Well, and then I remember we had a great conversation the other day. You told me that your dear sister saw an ad in the newspaper that said, are you having memory concerns? And how did that help? What did that lead you to do? Well, it was the ad for the clinical trial. And, you know, I really didn't know very much about clinical trials when I answered the ad. And... Um, you know, I, I got this feeling that when I called them and I did the pre-interview, and even when I arrived at the clinic, they weren't expecting much out of me. Um, I generally present fairly well, um, and you know, they didn't. I'm, I'm not your classic person suffering from Alzheimer's, let's just say. But um, I uh, scored significantly lower than I needed to on the, uh, or than that I should have on their uh, memory tests and mm -hmm. their cognition tests. Mm -hmm. And I left the uh, clinic that day with a appointment to go have an MRI uh, to make sure there wasn't anything else wrong with my, my brain and, you know, a real feeling, well, not just a feeling, but uh, I was told by the clinical the director of the clinic that there was probably something wrong. I think she said seriously wrong. Um, and, you know, I left and got in the car with my husband and we were driving home and of course there were tears, but there was also in many ways a sense of relief because I had known something was wrong. Right. And, you know, here it was, I was, you know, finally getting an affirmation that yes indeed something's wrong and I think a lot of people deal with that kind of issue and concern where they you know you just know that something's not right and it's not just classic I left my keys you know I can't find my keys again in the morning or you know that kind of thing you just know that there's something's off well especially someone like you Phil you're a man of detail when you write an article you have to make sure every nuance tells the story properly and you're used to being a detail person and you're going to notice that about yourself am I right yeah yeah I mean I used to run a team of 50 people you know after I after I left the times I went into communications and I worked for the ACLU and a very large environmental organization and um, you know, I would have staff and I'd be on the phone all day and, you know, meetings and scheduled every 15 minutes. And, you know, yeah, I was used to really moving fast. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, you know, you know, you can just, it's so hard to describe, but 
I'm sure anybody listening who's had the same feeling, it's not just about your memory either. I mean, it can be anything. You know, you know in your heart something's wrong. Your um, your brain was starting to hesitate, or you were having hiccups here and there, and uh, it wasn't the smooth assembly line that it usually had been. And I remember you telling me that one day you got up, did your usual routine. I heard your doggy, uh, and you have pets, and one of them is Max the cat. And you fed him breakfast, and then you went in and got dressed and came back to the kitchen, and you said to your husband, Tim, have you seen Max? And you probably saw each other's faces and both realized that you completely forgot the task you had done only minutes earlier. So, uh, you know, for our listeners, there's a, a concrete example of it. So what advice would you have for our listeners, Phil? Well, if they're, if they're experiencing, if they have concerns, um, there are so many clinical trials being run by both, you know, university researchers and pharmaceutical researchers and all kinds of researchers, government researchers, and, you know, if you can find a trial center near you, and they're, they're, they're not just in the huge hospitals and academic centers. The one I go to now is in Tom's River. It's just your typical suburban strip mall, and there's a, there's a doctor's office and a trial center in the middle of the strip mall. You, you, you start to find that there are people who understand what they're talking about in terms of memory loss. And the care that you will get if you qualify for their trials is extraordinary. Um, and we're never going to find a cure if people don't participate in trials. It's actually been identified as one of the huge, one of the biggest um, hurdles for finding a cure or treatment is the fact that they need people in these trials and it is so far hard to get them in. So the first thing I would say is if you have concern, find a clinical trial um, and, you know, explore it. See what's being offered. See what see what they tell you. Um, the second thing is stay engaged. It's absolutely critical. And even if you don't have memory concerns right now, if you want to avoid having memory concerns in the future, the best thing you can do for your body and your brain is to stay engaged to stay active, to walk, hear it all the time for everything, to eat a balanced diet, to, you know, don't just sit there and watch movies on Netflix or watch TV all day. Keep your brain engaged. Um, they say it's absolutely critical, the doctors say. Um, it really does help delay symptoms. Mm-hmm. And then and I- finally... Yep, go ahead, go ahead. I just want to say that, as you say, if you um, just become inactive, you're isolating yourself even more, and that constant stimulation, and and you were about to say to be an advocate. Right, I was just going to say, you know, it's so important, almost equally as important as getting involved in um, a clinical trial is to advocate uh, the first, I, you know, based on my old experiences, I knew I was going to want to write about being diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So I, I called the Alzheimer's Association, spoke to people in their press office, and it was a whirlwind. Suddenly I was on an early stage advisory group, a national one, and then I was, I'm on the board of the local chapter. You fundraise, you know, you help raise money for this. The Alzheimer's Association is the largest private funder of Alzheimer's research in the world. So you get involved that way, and it's ever so critical. And also, it gives you 
it gives you a sense of purpose, sure. which is also critical. Well, Phil, I have to say, I want to congratulate you. I was going to surprise you, but I decided to, for our listeners, I called Phil yesterday to say you are our champion this week because I've heard some beautiful stories, but you are incredible. And we hope that you continue to shine your light. And I told our listeners that you write for a blog called Being Patient, and you are. And I know it was a bit disappointing on Friday to hear that the medication was not uh, approved by the FDA, but I think there's hope. We just spoke to Dr. Barry Robner. There's hope that we'll continue to work on therapy, and there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you so much, Phil, and thank you, Tim, for helping uh, coordinate the longest day walk. We'll hear about more in the next segment from the Director of Programs in the Delaware Valley Chapter. Phil, thank you so much. Stay well and keep in touch. Thank you. Very much appreciated. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. And we're back for our last segment with Ms. Kelly Butsack, the Associate Director of Programs for the Alzheimer's Association, the Delaware Valley Chapter. Kelly, thank you for joining us. We have these few minutes. Please tell us about the helpline for the association. Well, thank you, Dr. Ritchie, for having me. Um, The Alzheimer's Association has a 24-7 toll-free helpline. The number is 800-272-3900. And that number is truly 24-7. It is not just a crisis line. It is really a helpline for anyone to ask any question or for any need, any time of the day or night, 365 days a year. It is... Um, manned by master's level social workers, consultants, and it is uh, translated into over 200 languages and dialects. So it is truly uh, one of the most important services that the association provides. And the majority of our callers are caregivers uh, who are caring for a loved one, whether it be a parent or a spouse or a friend or a neighbor. Um, But that line is also available to individuals who have a diagnosis of the disease and want to know more or individuals who maybe are concerned that they're having symptoms and maybe aren't yet diagnosed and and want to know what the steps are. It's also available to professional providers. We get a lot of calls from social workers and physician practices looking to connect patient families with resources. And of course, we get a lot of calls from our donors as well who are looking to see how they can get involved, how they can donate and support the organization through our fundraising events. And your website is so beautiful, easy to navigate. We have one minute left. Um, It's a safe space for support, learning, and venting, especially for caregivers. Am I right? It is. And we have education programs going on all the time. We have a system of support groups for caregivers and individuals. So yes, it is a safe space and a space for a lot of information and tools and And tips for managing and navigating the disease. And what I like right now is your COVID page with tips like if you're the, the patient who's suffering from dementia doesn't wash their hands properly, helping them keep six feet apart. But also if you have a home health care service worker that comes in and you want to make sure they're following all the guidelines with wearing masks and distancing. Yesterday, Saturday, November 14th, was the big 
annual Alzheimer's Association walk. I know you have 600 over the country and eight in our area. The Philly walk, yeah, you're up to $804,000 so far. And how can people help us break a million dollars? Tell us about the website. Well, even though the event was yesterday, uh, people can go to act.alv.org slash Philadelphia. And we are, we do continue to raise funds for our Walk to End Alzheimer's event through December 31st. So it's not too late to donate, not too late to support the cause of the event. And again, we are accepting uh, donations and we will be fundraising through the end of the year. Well, Kelly, thank you. If anybody wants to visit your website, it's alz.org and the helpline 1-800-272-3900. Kelly, thank you so much. And we want to say a very happy birthday to Linda Barba, the Manager of Marketing and Communications for the Alzheimer's Association. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks to all our guests today. Stay well. Now, your real champions. And now for your real champion, Phil Guttis. I call this segment Being Patient. Phil Guttis, a man with a busy, productive, happy life, he lives in the beautiful town of New Hope, Pennsylvania, with his husband Tim and several pets. For several years, he was a reporter for the New York Times and covered stories on every topic. He had a senior role in communications for the American Civil Liberties Union and the Natural Resources Defense Council. One morning, he went about his usual routine of feeding his pets, including Max the cat. Then he got dressed, and when he came back to the kitchen and asked Tim, Have you seen Max? With no recollection of the task he had performed only minutes earlier. This is a man who was writing for one of the most prestigious newspapers in the world, a man of detail. Something wasn't right. Phil's sister also noticed an occasion where his memory seemed a bit out of focus. He was only 54 years old, and his primary care doctor reassured him he was fine. His sister noticed an ad in a local paper which read, Having memory concerns? It led Phil to join a clinical trial. And after further testing, the diagnosis of Alzheimer's was made. He recalls the details of the day and says, When I got into the car to come home, first came the tears. But as I thought a little more, I actually felt a sense of relief. I knew I wasn't crazy. The diagnosis came in 2016, and last week Philip celebrated his 59th birthday. He admits that some people can't tell because I present well. Unlike other forms of dementia, in which people remember the past well and have trouble with recent memory, Phil has lost some of the images from the past. He plays a game with family who remind him of stories from the past, and Phil will say, I did that? How cool! You heard Phil's personal story earlier in the show. But he also has accomplished a yeoman's amount of work as an advocate. He writes and speaks extensively for the Alzheimer's Association, both nationally in the early stage advisory group and now locally as a board member of the Delaware Valley chapter. Helps with fundraising, advocates with legislators. He also writes for a website and a blog that share the latest news on Alzheimer's disease and brain health research. Phil's husband, Tim, is also a great support. He's the co-chair of the Longest Day Walk, held each year on summer solstice, which this year will be June 20. Every time he goes to a treatment, Phil's tradition is to wear silly shoes, like his eagle slippers. He shares the pictures on Facebook to inspire other patients to join a trial. Phil was faced with a dismal diagnosis and has transformed into a positive force. His message to other people with early dementia 
Maintain your sense of self, your identity. Don't curl up and watch Netflix all day. If you don't stay engaged, it'll just compound the problem. Don't let the disease isolate you. Number two, do everything you can to decrease your risk. Watch your diet and weight. Exercise. And number three, count your blessings. The Alzheimer's Association is a great resource. Join as an advocate. There's so much to be done. On Friday of last week, Phil listened closely to the hearings on the new drug that might be approved to treat Alzheimer's. His hopes were not met that day, but he continues to shine his light to other patients, caregivers, and the staff at the association. He is waiting and hoping, and he blogs his progress on a website called Being Patient. We salute you, Phil Guttis. You're a world champion. Friends, each year, the Alzheimer's Association holds 600 walks around the country, eight in our area. The Philadelphia Walk was just yesterday, Saturday, November 14, but you can still donate until December 31st of this year. So far, they've raised $804,000. Help them reach a million dollars. Visit the website, alz.org, to donate, alz.org walk. And remember the helpline, 800-272-3900. The helpline is so important, 800-272-3900. Thanks for listening. Visit our new website and hear our shows, yourradiodoctor.net. That's yourradiodoctor.net. Next week, we have a full hour lined up with the CEO of Independence Blue Cross, Mr. Dan Hilferty. And we're very happy to announce that we are now officially partnering with the Rothman Orthopedic Institute as a new sponsor. Look for my articles in Philly Voice. This month, I'll be writing about pancreatic cancer. Our show on pancreatic cancer aired on Sunday morning, November 8, the same day we lost Alex Trebek, and what a good man he was. Listen each Sunday night for my Health Watch segment on Women to Watch at 6 p.m. here on WPHT. And now, stay tuned for the delightful crooning of Frank Sinatra. And always remember that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.